Our guest pastor this morning is Nick Bogardis. Nick comes from uh, City of Orange. He's married to Kim. They have two kids together. Uh, he has served as the, the pastor in residence at uh, Biola Center for Christian Thought. Uh, he's also been in ministry for 10 years and planted two different Acts 29 churches. Um, so we'll welcome him here in just a minute uh, up to uh, preach and bring the word for us this morning. Before we do that, we're going to be in Psalm 127. So if you'll stand with us for just a minute as I read. Um, we do this every week just to uh, honor the Lord and the word of God as we read um, Psalm 127. We read the word of God together. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks about his enemies in the gate. You guys, welcome Nick Bogartis. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Scott, I don't want to throw you under the bus too hard, but we have three kids, and I only, I only say that in case they ever hear this and they think I forgot one of them. I want to make sure that they know it wasn't me. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, I, I've known Travis uh, for quite a while. Um, he came and preached for our church across the Christ in Orange County a few years back, um, and my wife and I do uh, coaching and consulting for Christian leaders in the marketplace and in ministry, and we came and did some work with Travis and Stephen early on in the planting of story. So it's great to be here uh, to be preaching with you, for you guys. Let me start my timer so that many preachers, I don't go over time. Um, I'm a little bit on the uh, efficiency-minded side, which is why this sermon is very helpful for me and maybe for you. Um, in the last two, two and a half years, um, all of us have experienced some amount of change. Um, some of us have changed jobs or careers, uh, like myself, uh, some of us have moved. Uh, there was just a U.S. Census report that came out that showed all of the states that people have left. I don't know if you saw that, but California was number one for departures. Um, I think we lost about 350,000 people, and it feels like I still know more people than that who left. Maybe you are the same. Um, all of us have experienced some amount of change, and in the, in the midst of change, it brings about stress, anxiety, and brings to the surface some assumptions that we might not have known were there, particularly related to this passage. And so I hope as we look in here about what it is to be, to desire to be extraordinary without God and God's presence in the ordinary, it might serve those of you well who are in the midst of change um, as it has still doing its work on, on me and in our life. So um, why don't we pray and we'll jump into uh, the sermon. Yeah, Father, we thank you that you are over everything and that you are in everything. We thank you that you are in the lives of the people of Story Church, and um, we hold before you uh, the challenges that we have and are facing, and we ask that you would use Psalm 127 um, to give us a glimpse of your sovereignty and your goodness and your presence with us and your, your enjoyment of us. Would you free us from anxiety? Would you give us the rest that you promise? In Jesus' name, amen. So every day of the week, you are at work. 
And that is a good thing because God made you, he made me as cultivators, right? Like in the garden, he put Adam and Eve there not to go on vacation, but to tend a garden. You have been given certain skills, uh, certain uh, abilities uh, that reflect God in some way that you are intended to steward and use for the cultivation of his world. It is good that you work. We have to put that up front. It is totally good that you are. And every day you are striving and building and guarding the life that you are trying to carve out in this existence, in this time that you have on this planet. The challenges, one of the challenges, is that also every day of the week, you are told on social media, on podcasts, from influencers and commentators, what a good, meaningful life does and does not look like. Every day you are inundated with messages of what is a meaningful and good life about. Um, so for example, on Instagram, any of you guys know who the Island Boys are? Okay. <laughs> I can't look away from how bad it is. Like, it's so bad. If you are unfamiliar with it, this is, it's like the worst caricature of hip-hop um, ever. Like, it's, it's just absolutely terrible. Um, you know, uh, diamond grills, um, uh, you know, fancy cars. Like, it's everything terrible, like in the, the worst characters of, of hip-hop by the two goofiest brothers you've ever seen. I, I, I just can't look away from it because it's so awful, but they are trying to put forth a vision of a life that is flashy, uh, that is in some way to some people commendable by their stacks of cash and stuff, right? Maybe for you it's not as superficial as that. Um, I really like Jocko Willink. Anyone of you guys know who Jocko Willink is? Okay, former Navy SEAL takes a picture of his watch at 4.30 every single morning just to show you you have failed by four hours by the time you get out of bed, right? Um, <laughs> But he's also giving you a picture of a, of a disciplined life, right? He's giving you a picture of um, here's what it could look like to wake up early, work out uh, hard, um, uh, be efficient in, the, in your professional career, all that stuff. Like he, he's giving you some really, I, mean, I think, really good principles to live by. Whether it's superficial, whether it is a, a former Navy SEAL in terms of like discipline, we're all inundated with pictures of a good life. Here's what Julie Canlis says. She wrote a really great little book called Theology of the Ordinary. She says, from Facebook to reality TV, we are in charge of the images that we project to others, and they better be good. No one wants to see someone on reality TV minding his own business, taking naps when she needs to, commuting to a boring job that pays the bills and keeps the children in school, loving his neighbor, and helping manage the church's finances. She's simply saying, if we actually showed what our real, ordinary lives look like, no one would keep scrolling, right? We want to kind of show these highlights, these, these pictures of, of a good life from our, from our own lives. And here's the thing, as we come together at this hour on Sunday morning, where we honor and glorify God, where we remind ourselves of his story and our place in it, and even more so, what is absolutely and objectively true, good, and beautiful, Without this hour of reorientation, you might drift off thoughtlessly into prescriptions of what is meaningful and good and true, but are actually not medicine for you. They're actually poison. And we start to believe, if we listen to these competing uh, pictures of what a good life is, we start to believe that a truly worthwhile life is an extraordinary life. That the ordinary parts of your life and my life are to be hidden or ignored 
or probably most commonly just endured. And we start to assume that ordinary life is mediocre or worse, not good at all. Most people are familiar with the two halves of Psalm 127 that we just read together, separate from themselves. But what we will see is that God, through the psalmist, is showing us that there are two ways to live here, two ways to live. So here's our roadmap for our time together. The first point is going to be the anxiousness of being extraordinary without God. The second point is going to be the blessing of being ordinary with God. And the third is the gospel from and for the ordinary. So the anxiousness of being extraordinary without God, the blessing of being ordinary with God, and the gospel from and for the ordinary. So first, the anxiousness of being extraordinary with God. There is some very pointed language here at the beginning of this psalm. That, that language of unless is repeated, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake uh, in vain. Unless is a conditional if, right? Unless you add eggs to a cake, it will fall apart. Unless you get regular oil changes, your car will not run. We actually had a friend one time who didn't change their oil for three years. You can imagine what happened to their car, right? Unless you do something, the result will not be what you desire. Unless you water the plants in your house, they will die. Unless God is involved, you're building, you're guarding, and you're striving are in vain. Unless God is present in the midst of them, they're will come to nothing. They will come to nothing. And this language of vanity, it means ultimately fruitless, pointless. They will not bring about what you intend. Uh, it's, it's kind of an echo of Ecclesiastes, uh, another book in the wisdom literature here in the, in the middle of the Bible, where a man might labor for his whole life, but he can't enjoy the fruit of it. And he has to pass it on to something else, that kind of vanity that you can work so hard and never actually uh, enjoy it. You have to leave it to somebody else. So unless... The Lord is present. You're striving, you're working, you're building, you're guarding are all in vain. And the outcomes of striving apart from God are, can you guys see it in here? The end of verse two, what are the outcomes? Anxious toil, this anxiety, this, the, this striving apart from God, our exhaustion and anxiety. All the building, all the striving, all the guarding that you do apart from God the outcome here in Psalm 127 is anxiety and exhaustion. Does that sound like a description of anyone, anything, any place, any country that you know? The striving apart from God, or exhaustion and anxiety. So it's kind of similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. And I love seeing the unity of Scripture. I'm sure uh, Travis and Stephen love to show you the, the whole story of God. And I love seeing the unity of Scripture where you can look in Psalm 127 and see, well... If you work apart from God, it's going to lead to anxiety and exhaustion. And then you look into the Gospels and you see Jesus saying, well, hey, um, you can't serve both God and money. And then he goes from that teaching right there exactly into teaching about how you shouldn't worry because God clothes the flowers of the fields and feeds the birds of the air and he gives rest. The scripture is unified in this principle that if you serve money, if you serve building and striving and guarding apart from God, the outcome is going to be this anxiety, this exhaustion. So unless God is involved, your building, your guarding, or striving is vanity and anxiety. And just to kind of reinforce the truth of this, here's two 
Um, here's a, an actor, a comedian, and a musician that reinforce this. First is Jim Carrey. Um, try not to picture Dumb and Dumber as you read this, because he's much smarter than that movie would let you uh, believe. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. It's a guy who has achieved some of the highest levels that Hollywood or celebrity might offer someone, and he says, I hope you guys get it, and you'll find out what I found out, that actually it's not the answer to what you're looking for. All the striving, all the guarding is vanity. Or an old friend of mine wrote a song called It's Not Enough, and he says this. He's actually echoing Ecclesiastes here. Though all the wealth of men were mine to squander, and towers of ivory rose beneath my feet, were palaces of pleasure mine to wander, the sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul would hold my name in honor, and truest love was always by my side, my praises sung by grateful sons and daughters, my soul would never still be satisfied. The striving, the guarding, the building apart from God is vanity, anxiety, exhaustion, and incompleteness. An incompleteness. It's important, a couple important caveats here. Because it's not saying, the psalm is not saying not to build and not to guard and not to work hard. It's saying not to do those things apart from God. As humans, we are given, like I said at the beginning of the term, capacities. We are given, not even just capacities, a, a direction from God at the beginning of Scripture to have dominion, to cultivate. Like, you are given skills and uh, abilities to steward in this life, to build and make something of it. That's something unique that humans have compared to all of, uh, all of the rest of creation. We can make something of this life. So it's not saying not to do that. Use those things. Build, build a life. Build a family. Build a business. Like, do good work. But don't do it apart from God. And the struggle is we often get so caught up in the doing of it, we don't stop to go, where's God in the midst of this? Does he want me to be doing this, right? There's that quote from Jurassic Park where Dr. Ian Malcolm said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could do something and think about if they should do something. Uh, if you're like me and you're kind of wired with a bias towards action, you start sprinting ahead without going like, wait a second, should I be doing this right now? That's kind of what this psalm is pressing on. Slow down. Find God in the midst of it. Is he involved? If he's not, we know the equation there. And it's also not saying, the second caveat, it's not saying that all anxiety is caused by striving apart from God. It's not saying that. If you struggle with anxiety, it's not, the, the, the diagnosis here is that there's somewhere that you are striving apart from God. It's not saying that all anxiety is caused by that. However, it is inviting you to examine how much of your anxiety may be caused by that. There might be something where you're struggling with a bit of anxiety and it gives you, here's an invitation to go, is this potentially a part of that? It's also making a subtle point that doing something without God may look successful, right? Because they did build a house. They did build a city. They did do some things that look really tremendous. The house is built, the city is guarded, and there's bread to it, but it will be anxious. And what may look extraordinary will actually end up being in vain. You may be the richest man in the world, and you have ch children willing to forego a fortune of an inheritance to have nothing to do with you. 
You may be one of the largest megachurch pastors in the world and celebrity culture, and the celebrity culture you cultivated will be the church's undoing. In Jesus' words, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? What the world calls extraordinary, view the world through, sorry, weigh what the world calls extraordinary through the lens of what God says is good. Psalm 127 here is a good lens through which to do that. I want you to hear this really important, tender invitation in the midst of this. Because the first part of this passage here is, is pretty uh, clear, cut and dry, right? Unless, then. But there's a tender invitation at the end of this first half of the psalm. What does it say that God gives? If the result of your striving and building and guarding apart from God is vanity and exhaustion, what does God give? What do you guys see in the passage there? Rest. God wants to give you rest. The God of all creation, the God of the universe, his desire, he's not a cosmic CEO. He is not up there wanting to simply, he's not up there with like a pass or fail grade waiting for you to just stumble. He is a God who is inclined to be good towards you. And this goodness in this passage is rest. This is what God wants to give to you. An author named Zach Eswine says this, you were, never met to, you, you were never made to fix everything, to be everywhere at once, to know everything. You don't have to repent for that. You have to repent for trying. It's in the trying that we get all the anxiety and the exhaustion. It's in the embracing of our own limitations and receiving God's rest that we find that true peace. Eugene Peterson was a, a pastor for years, and then he was an author, wrote a ton of great books. Um, he wrote a translation of the Bible called The Message. Some of you may be familiar with this. Um, he says this in his book, Run With The Horses. Pliny the Elder once said that the Romans, when they couldn't make a building beautiful, just made it real big. The practice continues to be popular. If we can't do it well, we make it larger. We add dollars to our incomes, rooms to our houses, activities to our schedules, appointments to our calendars, and the quality of life diminishes with each addition. On the other hand, every time we retrieve a part of our life from the crowd and respond to God's call to us, we are that much more ourselves, more human. Every time we reject the habits of the crowd and practice the disciplines of faith, we become a little more alive. You hear there in Peterson's words what the psalmist is getting at. All this striving just to get bigger, and more is exhaustion and vanity. The embracing of the limitations, the reclaiming of that part of dependent humanity and receiving God's rest is where we find true wholeness and goodness. Apart from striving to be extraordinary apart from God is vanity. The second part of the psalm is about the blessing of being ordinary with God. The blessing of being ordinary with God. God blesses with ordinary things like children in this passage, right? A lot of us are familiar with this passage as a principle for um, the value of uh, life, children, family. That is totally true. But let's also look at it in contrast to the first half of the passage where the psalmist is contrasting this kind of extraordinary striving with this ordinary raising of children. And the psalmist must have a real sense of humor 
going from talking about sleep that God gives to the raising of children, right? Parents of young children, how's the sleep going? The thousands of changed diapers, hours upon hours of breastfeeding, sleepless nights, peanut butter and jellies, bedtime stories, parent-teacher conferences, tantrums, first laughs, first words. God blesses those ordinary moments. God forms in those ordinary moments. God blesses with ordinary things, like children. We're not talking about cities or houses or anything like that here. We're simply talking about little kids. And perhaps contrasting God's blessing in the ordinary through the blessing of children with our desire to be extraordinary uh, exposes two kind of common distortions of our view of children that we should probably look at in our culture this morning. Uh, The two kind of common distortions that we view children through are idols and obstacles. Idols and obstacles. When we view children as idols, and this is kind of typically the disposition or temptation of those of you kind of on the right side of the political or social spectrum, we tend to kind of put children more as idols. And so we plan our entire lives around them. We base our whole uh, you know, identity as a parent on whether or not they're successful or not. Uh, we simply add more and more to the calendar because this little child has to have everything. I never, like all of that kind of stuff, right? We put them on this idolatrous pedestal. And that's a distortion. And that leads to a whole bunch of uh, unnecessary pressure and awfulness there. On the left side of the spectrum, we might view children as obstacles, where we put our career first, our experiences first, our own personal freedom first. If we have kids, it's going to slow down our career. It's going to slow down our ability to go on the vacations when we want, whatever else. We might say, well, they're just obstacles. The Bible from Adam and Eve to Jesus in the Gospels, reiterates that God blesses through the ordinariness of children. Children are not an idol, and they're not an obstacle, they're a blessing. In addition to God blessing in the ordinariness of the family, God blesses in daily kindnesses to baristas and grocers. This is an important principle to get because you are all in some way, conduits of blessing in ordinary moments, right? Like your interactions with your barista, your interactions with waiters, mechanics, neighbors, those are all ways that God blesses people in this world through the church. God blesses in daily kindnesses, the unseen tasks at your job that you do that no one recognizes but you do because they need to get done for the good of your coworkers in the business, in the making of breakfast, in reading the homework and the pages you need to for the class that you're attending this week, in the simple making of your bed, in your daily errands, God is at work and present. Again, Zach Eswine says this, you wanna do large things, famous and fast, but most things that truly matter need small acts of overlooked love over a long period of time. This is something that we know to be true, if we're honest, We know that the things in our life that matter the most are not the big, um, huge experiences, the mountaintop things. They are the quiet, tended, cultivated things over a long period of time, small acts of overlooked love. Wendell Berry takes it to another level where he says, picture your family. 
there will ultimately be one person who buries the others. And that's a sad, dark thought to think about. But when you think about it like that, you go, what really matters? What are the things in my life that I actually want to be truly, deeply investing in and giving and guarding and, and building and striving for? The ordinary things. A life of blessed ordinariness with God. The psalmist says that ordinary dependence on God's blessing and weakness and limitation through the blessing of children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and it will not bring shame. Think about the picture of arrows in the hand of a warrior, weapons for a warrior that would have been skillfully over years of discipline training, they would have learned to use. There's a confidence and a strength that a warrior has in the weapons of his profession. There's a, there's a confidence and a fearlessness in the face of threat or uncertainty. Think about the picture of not being put to shame when facing your enemies because of that confidence. Someone who is dependent on God's blessing, who is communing with God, who is receiving and not striving, it's going to be hard to find anything bad to say about them, is what the psalm is saying. If you are tending to the ordinary blessing in, God, in your life that God has given you, you're not busy doing things that are going to tarnish your reputation, right? The normal, everyday family guy is going to be hard to find dirt on versus the... <laughs> Like the like Tom Haverford, you know, kind of like going out, partying, clubbing, kind of like, it's going to be easy to find some dirt on that person. In the ordinary blessing that God gives, there is the added benefit of your kind of a brother approach as you tend to those things, as you tend to those ordinary blessings. There's a fun contrast here. Um, an old friend of mine made this um, analogy where, have you guys seen, anyone seen Mad Men? Okay, cool. Friday Night Lights, anyone? Yeah, Friday Night Lights. My favorite TV show of all time, Friday Night Lights, right? So uh, he says this, if I had to choose between the life of Don Draper and Coach Taylor, Don Draper was like an ad executive. He was like flashy New York uh, principal at, at an ad agency. I just had this like glamorous life, but he was an absolute inward wreck. Hor horrific human being. Coach Taylor was a high school football coach in a nobody town in Texas um, whose players constantly went after crisis after crisis and who there was kind of a continual downward trajectory in all of their lives. And my friend says, if I had to choose the life that they had, I would probably choose Don Draper's. But if I had to choose the man I'd want to be, it'd be Coach Taylor. And that's the idea of the extraordinary versus the ordinary as we're striving, as we're trying to build and doing all these things in vanity, all the things that the world says are good and strong and commendable are actually inwardly corrosive and crumbling. Whereas when you tend to the ordinary parts of your life, there is a confidence that you have that when someone brings charges against you, they're not going to have much to say. Your extraordinary resume, your extraordinary accomplishments are not your hope and refuge. And your extraordinary parenting, your extraordinary Christian life are not your hope and refuge. Your target is not that extraordinary. Your target is dependence on God's blessing in the ordinary everyday parts of your life. Aim, aim for the extraordinary and you might hit it, but you'll miss the ordinary. However, if you aim for the ordinary, 
You may get the extraordinary in the mix of it, but it won't even be necessary to you. In closing, the gospel from and for the ordinary. Here's the deal. Jesus won your salvation, my salvation, his church's salvation in the ordinary moments of his life. That's where Jesus won our salvation. At the beginning of this sermon, we talked about how every hour this week on Sunday mornings reorients us to what is most true and good and beautiful. At the center of existence, as you peel back, as you dig down, as you clear away all of the clutter and the noise and the distractions around us, you get to this real, unbelievable reality of Jesus. Your guys' church name is Story Church, right? Like there's this moment, there's this hour every single Sunday morning where you are reorienting yourself to God's story and your place in it. What is his story? What is he doing? What does he want? And at the, the flaming, hot, bright, amazing center of that is Christ. But that Christ is the one that God sends to a manger in a stable in the backwards part of Israel. Born to a carpenter, raised in an absolutely ordinary family. Think about this. Why couldn't Jesus have died as a baby for our sins? Someone asked Calvin that. Why couldn't he have just died as a baby for our sins? Calvin's response was, well, over those 30 years, he was accomplishing salvation for us. In the millions of the quiet moments of his life, not documented in the Gospels, actually even if you were to look at it as you're reading Scripture, in the spaces in the Gospels, in the, the, the points between narratives, in those points, Christ is winning salvation for us. In those moments where he is depending on his heavenly father, as he cooked with his mother, did chores around the house, took naps, learned to trade with his dad, fetched water, played with friends, learned to read, played in the countryside, as he bore with frustrating friends, endured grief and loss, faced accusations and betrayal in all of the ordinary parts of life, Christ was winning your salvation. And it was this dependence in his ordinary life that God the Father affirmed at Jesus' baptism, if you remember. Remember what the Father said to the Son in the baptism? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. An old pastor friend of mine made this great point where he said, at that point in Jesus' ministry, he hadn't done a single thing. He hadn't taught a sermon, hadn't done a miracle, hadn't raised anybody from the dead, hadn't done anything extraordinary. He had simply been an ordinary person to that point. His ministry began after that. And yet the Father was pleased with him. In those ordinary moments, Christ was winning salvation for us. You'll remember it was Satan, actually, who tempted Jesus not to be dependent on God, to be independent and extraordinary by turning rocks into bread, having angels rescue him from a fall, or obtaining all the kingdoms of the world. Similar to God's gift in the rest of the psalm, the Holy Spirit's primary job is to point you to your identity as a beloved son or daughter of God. The Holy Spirit renews your dead heart in regeneration, gives you faith, gives you conviction of sin, assurance of salvation, and in that 
recipe of salvation. He is anchoring you, reorienting you to your identity as a beloved son or daughter of God. Those of you who are Christians this morning are beloved by God the Father in your ordinary, everyday lives. Like I said, in the last two years, I went through a significant change, significant career change. And as I was kind of making this decision, um, I, <clears throat> I'm wired for efficient, like I don't mind doing scary things, I just want to mitigate all risk out of the equation, right? Um, <laughs> And my poor wife has to deal with all those thousands of conversations. Well, what if we did this? Whatever, over and over again. And in the midst of this transition, a good friend of mine is a pastor in Seattle. He said this to me that I thought was super helpful as a reflection of how God interacts with his kids in these moments of ordinariness. He said, Nick, look, are you, are you deciding between things, like something that's sinful and not? No, like they're both good. Okay, cool. Um, I think God just wants to play with you. Like, he wants to play on the playground with you. You get to choose if it's the slides or the monkey bars. Just make a choice. Okay. Freedom. No pressure. Like, God wants to be with me wherever I am in the ordinary parts of life, whether that's the slide or the monkey bars. And if that's where Christ has won salvation... The gospel has everything to do with your ordinary life. The gospel has everything to do with your ordinary life. Consider how ordinary these gospel-directed circumstances are in the New Testament. Look at these. I'm not going to read these for the sake of time. I just have a lot to give you the sense that this is all throughout the New Testament. Okay? Look at these. Then hear how ordinary these are. Right? Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Does that sound extraordinary to you? It sounds like... A Kind of Jocko every day, like, get up and get to work, right? It's normal. Have a daily life where you're not lazy, right? Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Ordinary. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Romans 12. Ephesians 4. Stop telling lies. Let us tell the neighbors the truth. Again, in Ephesians 4. If you're a thief, quit stealing bread. Use your hands for good hard work, right? Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 6, work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. You start to see through this lens here of ordinariness that the gospel has everything to do with those everyday, small, unseen moments of your life. Now, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, I believe many of us have assumed that the ordinary life is mediocre. We begin to believe that a truly Worthwhile life is an extraordinary one, that the ordinary parts of our existence might be just hidden, ignored, or endured, right? What I hope you see in Psalm 127 is that the pursuit of an extraordinary life apart from God leads to exhaustion and vanity and anxiety. And instead, it's actually the ordinary aspects of your life are precisely the places where God wants to be with you, working alongside you, having you know his love for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are a people who breathe the air of, of anxiety every day. We are anxious about our work, about money, 
about our families, any number of things. Would you show us the places in our lives we are striving and building and guarding apart from you? Lord, would you give these people here in Story Church a deep sense of your love for them, your presence with them? And God, would you make this church a people who live out an otherworldly, miraculous courage in the midst of the ordinary, a people who have peace in the face of uncertainty as they work and build and strive and rest. Amen.